You're listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. Jubilee Montreal is a Christian church located in downtown Montreal that exists to share the good news as a spiritual family for holistic transformation. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jblmontreal.org. I'd like to thank Michael and the board for offering me the opportunity to speak today, although maybe I shouldn't be thanking them because last week Michael spoke about how the basis of whether you should listen to what someone says is not how charismatic they are or uh, how educated they are, but whether they show humility and reveal the Jesus of the Bible. That's a tough standard. Uh, I always appreciate the teaching in our church for that reason. I think we try to be honest about what we can know Uh, and what we can't know about God. Uh, I like that we never try to add too much or say something just to provide an answer, uh, even when there are things we're not so sure about. Uh, But I also appreciate how committed we are, or some of us are, uh, to the teaching of, of the essential gospel, which we believe to be transformative, which in its beauty speaks for itself. That's what we're going to go for again today, uh, with the only caveat that you have to put up with me for half an hour. Uh, For those of you that don't know me, I'm Manuel. I'm a researcher and a teacher at McGill University. I study uh, 17th century poetry. I specialize uh, in Milton, especially, the the religious poet John Milton, and ways of knowing in his works. So it's sort of especially cruel that I've been asked to speak on 1 John, a letter which concerns itself so much with the question, How do we know? How do we know what's true? How do we know who is a child of God? How do I know that I, Manuel, am a child of God? In my day-to-day work, I spend time trying to think of new things and new ideas and new arguments about poetry. Uh, Today, I'm going to try to speak about something old and beautiful. I won't give you anything fresh except what I think God has put in my heart to share with this church. Uh, In my day-to-day work, one of my goals is to maintain an objectivity and critical distance from the things I study, Uh, but today I'm going to forego that critical distance and talk about something and someone I really love. Uh, I'm hoping that he'll work in your heart and mine. The goal is not, in the end, learning, but transformation. And as today's passage, 1 John uh, chapter 4, verses 7 to 21, shows, Knowledge and love of God are not things that are easily separated. My loved ones, let us devote ourselves to loving one another. Love comes straight from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and truly knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Because of this, the love of God is a reality among us, God sent his only son into the world so that we could find true life through him. This is the embodiment of true love. Not that we loved God first, but that he loved us and sent his unique son on a special mission to become an atoning sacrifice for our sins. How can we be sure that he truly loves in us and that we truly live in him? By one fact, he has given us his spirit. We have watched what God has done, and we stand ready to provide eyewitness testimonies to the reality that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone unites with our confession that Jesus is God's own Son, then God truly lives in that person, and that person lives in God. 
we have experienced and we have entrusted our lives to the love of God in us. God is love. Anyone who lives faithfully in love also lives faithfully in God, and God lives in him. This love is fulfilled with us so that on the day of judgment we have confidence based on our identification with Jesus in this world. Love will never invoke fear. Perfect love expels fear, particularly the fear of punishment. The one who fears punishment has not been completed through love. We love because he first loved us. If someone claims, I love God, but hates his brother or sister, then he's a liar. Anyone who does not love a brother or sister whom he has seen cannot possibly love God whom he has never seen. He gave us a clear command that all who love God must also love their brothers and sisters. I read in the voice translation because I want you to think differently about this passage, which you might have read before, as many of us have. But I'll be referring, referring throughout to uh, the NRSV because I think it's a good word for word translation. Um, I'm not starting something fresh today. We've been going through First John, as, as Michael said. Um, and this passage, just like the rest of First John, is very cyclical in its argument. It says the same thing in many different ways, changing the metaphor to describe what God is like and what that means for us. Chapter 1 talks about how God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Light doesn't try to be light. It just is light. It illuminates what is good and exposes what is wrong. Uh, John asks us, begs us, to just be honest with ourselves about being in the light. Uh, chapters 2 and 3, he talks about the importance of obeying God, which is evidence that we've moved from death to life in following Christ. And it's not just about being better, trying harder, but becoming empowered by the Spirit of God to be granted understanding and the miracle of love. In the final verses of chapter 3, John collapses truth and love. Okay? He starts to erase the distinctions between the two. You don't necessarily know truth by good arguments or even good doctrine, though these are important, but by living out love. He says, let us love not in word or in speech, but in truth and action. And by this we will know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn him. And finally, in the first part of chapter 4, he talks about discerning what is true and good so that we can embrace truth and reject error. Uh, in this final part of chapter 4, he'll talk about what it looks like when people embrace the truth of God and what it looks like when we step away from it. Here, then, is the take-home message that I'm hoping to drive home for the rest of our time. I'm a teacher. I always have a thesis. God, who is himself love, made and still makes himself known by drawing near to us. He did this most profoundly in Jesus, who not only demonstrates love, but is himself an act of love in his sacrifice. Love, according to John, is always transitive. That is, it's always moving from someone to someone else. So God, who first loved us, has put something in us that by its very nature needs to be communicated or known. Love made known. That's why it's absolutely necessary that love continues its course in our lives and how we relate to one another. It's also why we're told three times in this passage to love one another. Here's the first. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. 
John has no time for anyone who thinks to explain God in the absence of love. You're encouraged to be skeptical of someone who claims to speak of God, but doesn't bear the fruit of love, even if that's me. Uh, but there's also quite a bit of good news here. For starters, it means that however complex or simple God may be, to know him is to love him, regardless of how little else you know. Authority derives from this crazy little thing called love, not from some super esoteric special, yes, you'll hear them throughout, uh, super esoteric special understanding that you can only get if you're really brilliant or if you pay the right amount of money. Uh, secondly, none of this should be utterly alien to you, even if you're not a Christian. The text seems to suggest that, in some sense, anyone, anytime someone loves, one is participating in the knowledge of God, and it's evidence of some relationship uh, to God. That doesn't mean you're living perfectly, which we'll talk about later, uh, but when someone who isn't a Christian loves, they are in some sense showing knowledge of God. They're reflecting their having been created by God. Uh, finally, it's good news because the person you're trying to understand, he's premised on love, and love is all you need. I think we take this profound truth quite for granted. Theos agape estin, God is love, not God is loving. Um, but even the notion that God is loving, I think, is pretty profound. The vast majority of ancient religion doesn't figure to speak about the divine in these terms. Um, God, or more plausibly, gods, may be favorable or unfavorable. They may be extremely powerful. They may be immortal. Uh, by contrast, the God of the Old Testament, as he rece uh, reveals himself to Moses, says he is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I leave it to you to imagine a universe in which an omnipotent creator is the Lord, the Lord, a God unforgiving and ungracious, quick to anger, abounding in steadfast hate and faithlessness. That could have been this universe, and it's not. Um, So the biblical notion that God is loving is not new, but John goes further. Uh, God himself is love. His nature is to love. He's defined by it. The second he is not love, he is no longer the God of the Bible. So I've been skirting the issue a lot here, and I know what you're all thinking. What is love? <laughs> Baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> it stops there. This is, that's the last time. Um, this is a bit of a frustrating question, I think, because most of human mean, meaning is about what is love. And I'm not about to exhaust the definition for you in half an hour. Uh, it's also frustrating because the English language has become so cavalier about the word love. I love pumpkin spice latte. Or if you're hungry, ba-da-ba-ba-ba, I'm loving it. Uh, you look deep into the eyes of your significant other or cat and you say, I love you. Um, you spend an hour on the phone with your mother and at the end you hang up and say, love you too, right? Uh, the original language of the text doesn't have this problem. Koine Greek has a word for intimate romantic love, uh, another for affectionate relationship between friends, and even one for empathic love towards family members. 
But when John tells us to love our brothers and sisters, he doesn't use any of these words. Instead, he says, agapetoi, agapom, and alelus. Beloved, let us love one another. And you can hear the play on words already there. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with you talking about agape love, which many of you will have heard about already, but we should talk about its usage in this passage. Uh, the kind of love that John is describing here is the same kind that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians uh, 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking, etc. It means to wish well, to take pleasure in something or someone. Uh, in biblical context, love is most importantly a sacrificial motivation of goodwill and affection towards a chosen party. Maybe that's abstract. Uh, I think it should be more clear if you think of what you know of God already. If God is love, then love should be something like God. It should be divine. Many very wise people like to say that love is an action, not a feeling. And I think those wise people are wrong, and that definition is incomplete. I'm sorry, John. Uh, the example from God otherwise wouldn't make sense. Did God merely love us in action, or does he hold affection for us? Was he primarily disgusted by you, and so he sent his one and only son into the world? Doesn't he rejoice over you with singing? Doesn't he call you out to be his bride and marry him for good? In any case, the word agape certainly does have to do with affection and feeling. It has a sense of moral preference. I like and choose you. I like and choose you so much that I'll seek out your good, even when it costs me something. Jesus says you will either hate love, sorry, you either hate God and love money, or you will love money and hate God. There's no action here. It's about what you treasure, what you hold dear, what or who you feel is important enough to be worth your time and your hurt and your laughter. Love is affection as well as action. And you'll say, how's that fair? God can't just command me to feel something. Actually, I think he does. I think he does it all the time. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil, Psalm 97. Let love be genuine, Romans 12. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom, James 4, 9. Rejoice, says Paul, six times. And Jesus says rejoice four times. And of course we have it here. Love one another. But then how do you do that? How is it possible to feel love? to feel affection for someone that you aren't naturally prone to feel affection towards? Is it even possible to feel affection towards Matt? <laughs> the answer is yes, of course, come on. Oh, I shouldn't have written this. I'm, I'm, trying not, I'm not trying to be too casual about this. I kind of am. Um, I, I, I agree that you can't force feeling and that it's not really possible to suddenly switch. Okay, I acknowledge that. I also know that it can feel like there are good reasons why we don't love one another. In a church, you're often in a position of weakness and rawness, and you can get hurt. Sometimes you're willing to love someone, and that person isn't at that time ready or willing to love you back. What do you do then? I promised you I wasn't going to provide you with easy answers. 
uh, but the rest of this passage is going to give at least a partial framework for how we can go about answering that kind of question. As, Christian John, as Christians, John says, we are born of God and we know God. That means that we have his nature. So maybe we can look to him to get a sense of what it's like to love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he sacrificed us. Sorry, he loved us. <laughs> and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Oh boy. Uh, beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. It begins with God. Not that we loved God, but he loved us. He loved you before you loved him. Paul says it a different way. God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or again in the Gospels, while he was still a far way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Love, in other words, is about closing distance and drawing nearer. For God so loved that he sent. Christianity is premised on the nearness of God, and specifically the nearness of God on this earth in the person of Jesus. Please understand this Christmas how radical this idea is. In other religions, even the version of Christianity that John is rebutting, it's absurd that God should have human characteristics or that he should be described in human terms. Islam will be founded 500 years after John writes on this very principle. In the classical religions of Greece and Rome, it might be possible to imagine a God in the flesh. Jove will come down, but most of the time he's raping you. Or maybe the God Mercury will come down, but he's not there to bring you good news because it's not good news that the God himself is coming. God belongs up there and uh, we belong down here, right? That's, that's the assumption of this culture. It's difficult even for the Jewish folk who walked with Jesus to conceive of a God so near you that you can eat with him, much less one who will wash your feet or will bleed for you. The incarnation when God enters human history is cosmologically mind-blowing, but it's so perfect an image of what the Bible says that love is. He came because of course he did. God is love, and love is about drawing near. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. This is the second time that, God, that John tells you to love one another. Frankly, it's sort of a lot. We ought to love one another as God does. I don't know. It's a bit tricky. I think it's easy to read this verse in isolation and think, Okay, God loved me, now I have to emulate God and love others like he loved me. Well, yes, actually, that is, that's true. Uh, but don't forget what we just read. Believers are born of God and know God. They do the kinds of things he does. We ought to love, and make no doubt about it, there's an obligation there. But we also ought to love because it's simply what we do. John Piper says of this passage that we ought to love the same way that a fish ought to swim or a bird ought to fly or peaches ought to be sweet and lemons sour. Do you see that tension? You have an obligation, and presumably you might not do it, otherwise John wouldn't be telling you three times to do it. 
But at the same time, when you're born of God, that's simply what you do. There's a sense in which you can't do otherwise if you're born of him. There's more. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is perfected in us. The implication here is that we will see God when he lives in us, and we love one another. The purpose of God's love meets its final aim in us when we do that. But be careful about that word perfect. It doesn't mean idealized or made without fault. John's not saying that God's love was imperfect in us, and then it's made perfect. It doesn't have that kind of moral connotation. Instead, it has the sense of completion. His love is fully developed in us. It reaches its final stage, its theological purpose, only when his love is poured in us and it continues out. Romans 5.5 5 says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. But if it stays there, it's wasted and it's made ineffectual. It's an incomplete love. It only becomes perfect, that is, complete, when we love one another. And this is the only way that we can come to know God. That's the bottom line. I think it's common to think of religion as exchange. I do something, God does something in return. But it's not quite so simple. The basis of Christianity is a cycle of love. It's set in motion and maintained by God, but with our participation. Love courses, and like truth, it stagnates if it's not in motion. John Milton observes that, quote, truth is compared in scripture to a streaming fountain. If her waters flow not in perpetual progression, they sicken into a muddy pool of conformity and tradition. He's a Protestant. Uh, the same is true of love. It has to be made known or communicated. Love is like a river. It's not a pool of standing water. It's an electrical current, not an electron or charge. It just doesn't exist statically. The second it becomes static, it's no longer love. God's love is only perfected, made manifest when we love one another. When you put up Christmas lights, remember that they're only gonna shine when electricity is running through. It's not enough to be able to hold a charge. Love is the same way. That's why we like to talk about spiritual maturity here in Jubilee as giving love and receiving love. When you can do those two things, then you can claim to know God. This is also why it doesn't make sense when someone says they don't need so-called institutionalized religion. They have their God and their Bible and that's enough. Maybe that's us sometimes. We're tired of the hypocrites and you can love God yourself anyway and be righteous. But that attitude seems to ignore the essence of how the New Testament talks about love. And it explicitly contradicts the commandment to love one another because you can't love at a distance. Please understand I'm not trying to be too judgmental. I understand disappointment. I understand hurt. I've seen it. I just think that it's too costly to let hurt be the defining feature of a life or a church. God loved, God sent, so we might live through him, abide in him, and him in us. That has to be the goal. I'm going to skip over a few verses before coming back to them, but look at verse 16 onwards. So we have known and believed the love that God has for us. 
God is love, second time. And those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. As is typical of John, he leads with the positive version of a truth, and then he gives the negative version to round it out. But there's a twist. The opposite of love here isn't merely hate, right? This is what we would come to expect. It's fear. And it's counterintuitive, but the more you think about it, I think the more it makes sense. Fear has to do with judgment, with running away. The Greek word there is phobos, which is where we get the words arachnophobia and xenophobia. And those two examples, as they suggest, um, phobos implies not only fright, I'm scared, but also a kind of moral distancing. Uh, phobos, in fact, comes from the older word phebomai, to flee, withdraw. And I think even without the etymology, we can kind of get a sense of this. It makes sense a little bit intuitively. We see it in the story of Genesis, after God has eaten the fruit and broken trust. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. I was afraid, and I hid. It's human nature. You see, fear is premised on moral separation, not moral identification. You're not with me, so the power or authority that you wield can damage me. Understandably, I either run away or I fight back and protect myself. If fear and love are diametrically opposed, the stakes for this are really high. The presence of fear suggests that we're not abiding in God, that love is not circulating, and so God isn't being shown. He's not being seen. We need to be able to identify fear in ourselves and others if we're going to have a real sense, I think, of what is happening when love is not happening. It is indeed an emotion, but I think it can also be an attitude. Maybe it looks like the person I was describing before, someone who thinks they only need God and they don't need church. Maybe fear looks like choosing to keep doing the same thing when God is calling you to do a new thing with him. Maybe it looks like defensiveness, being aggressive when someone challenges you about something. Maybe it looks like stonewalling or emotional unavailability. Maybe someone is trying to love you and you're cutting the cord, you're closing the door, you're turning around. Or maybe it's as simple as failing to enjoy life as fully as you ought because you're worried about missing out. Fear has to do with punishment, the rarer Greek word kolossus, which includes a sense of deprivation. Maybe you feel like you're being punished for living one life and not another. Whatever it is, fear isn't just uncertainty. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world and sometimes even in our relationships with others. I think actually uncertainty is what makes real relationship possible. 
there has to be a way, there is a way to deal with uncertainty in a way that doesn't isolate us. And fear isn't vulnerability either. In many ways, it's the opposite. Vulnerability, from Latin, vulnera, wound, is the ability to be hurt, to be wounded. And you can only be wounded by people you allow to get close. As we've discussed, closeness is a condition for love. Uh, but here's the thing. Um, love and fear are not just opposites. Perfect love, which is to say fully developed love, casts out fear, ex baloi, as you said last week. It throws it out. It replaces it. And the message of Jesus offers a solution for this problem of separation and of fear. If Jesus came to love, then he came to drive out fear. You have to imagine that you are a jar of clay, chipped and accumulating daily a new portion of fear. That fear is a marker of separation and an inhibition to living out a full life. Many of us are aware of ourselves like that. But God is aware of the distance between yourself and him, even if you're not. When things are going very well for you, and you're feeling pretty good about your job, uh, or you're proud of your education, there's friends that you like to spend time with, you have a good reputation outside of your inner circle, it doesn't slip God's mind that it's still possible that you're living around, living a life based around fear. It's very possible to be an ornate jar and still harbor a sense of isolation and unrest. So what does he do? He comes himself and makes his dwelling among you. Verse 16, God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. The love of God, God himself in the Holy Spirit, is poured into your heart and flushes out fear, so that rivers of flowing water, rivers of living water, flow from you. The metaphors God uses are always dynamic. They're always kind of involving motion, uh, because even in abiding, God requires the circulation of love. So instead of imagining some private relationship with God and your Bible, you're able to fulfill his commandment to love one another. Instead of doing the same old thing, you can understand and participate with what God says in Isaiah 43:19. I am about to do a new thing. It springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Instead of becoming defensive when God or one of his representatives sitting next to you challenges you about sin, you can reject rejection and you can embrace righteousness. You can accept love because you know you're accepted. Your worst does not define you or your relationships. And finally, you can stop worrying about missing out. You've entered a dance with Jesus and his people. You don't have to be looking over your shoulder to see who's dancing with who else. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation is able to, what? Separate us from the love of God, Christ Jesus our Lord. The opposite of this is Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. 
my cup overflows. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame. My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows but it overflows only because Jesus has taken my cup of suffering and exchanged it for a better one. He has experienced my isolation. He received my rejection. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? John says, we love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. This commandment, the commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. Beloved, let us love. Beloved, we ought to love. And here, we must love. But we do that because it's what God has done. Don't be too quick to get up from the table. You must sit down and eat. Once you do, feel free to invite others to join you at the table. This is an invitation to everyone who knows that they are jars of clay. Love needs to be made known to everyone. But the New Testament places special emphasis on loving your brother and your sister who are here. They are born of God also. We need to ask ourselves, are we letting the love of God be made complete in us? Or are we allowing it to gather still like a puddle? Does the way we treat each other reflect a spirit of fear? or a spirit of love? Do I avoid certain people because I don't like them? Am I not in a microchurch because someone is there? Do I not go for dinner because someone is there? Am I taking up the responsibility and opportunity that God is calling me to? Or am I living out of fear? Or out of fear, am I grasping on to a ministry when what I should really be doing is handing it over to new hands, discipling someone. All of this is love. And it's a challenging message. Uh, but it's simply what we do because we're born of God and we know him. Okay? 
1 John 3, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. That is what it means for love to be made known. Worship team can come up. We can start doing that right now uh, in communion. During communion, we remember who Jesus is and what he's done for us. It's not magic. It's a reminder and an acting out of our heart's belief that Jesus is our savior, our king and our friend. The only requirement to take part in this today is to have decided to follow Jesus, even if you're deciding this today. I want to pray because I want to give us the opportunity to decide that today. Many of us have only known fear. I think that's the, that's the standard condition for life in the world. You have to. How would you survive otherwise? But God's always pouring out love. He doesn't stop. It's not like a faucet turning on and off. He's always pouring out love. And you can participate. You can join. You can join the plumbing system that is the church and never stop moving. And he can move you from fear to love. Thank you for listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jvlmontreal.org.